Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 50 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep, and welcome Moira. Hello. Hi, Dave. Hi, everyone. And so it's the end of 2019, coming into 2020. We made it. We and made it. End of another year. Just yeah, recording this at the very end of the year. People will be listening to this in the new year. Happy New Year. And summer in Australia and it's hot. And so the topic yeah. for this month, sleeping in the heat. Yeah, well-timed. So what else has been happening over the last few months for you, Maura? Well, one of the most exciting things I've done since last time we spoke on the podcast was I was invited um, as a sleep person. I was repre- representing the Sleep Health Foundation, but I was just there as a sleep expert, really, for, for Smiley Mind. Because they were, and they're an Australian not-for-profit organisation that are very focused on mindfulness. They have a fantastic app, and it's they have millions, you know, millions of people using the app. It's fantastic. They're a really great success story. And I was there, a really lovely. I was a, a panel, like a guest, on two breakfast symposium symposia. One was in Sydney, one was in Melbourne, and they were they were launching their annual survey. They're starting. They're going to do like like people at Sleep Health Foundation doing some some data collection and looking, just getting a bit of a sneak peek or representative sample of what's going on in the minds of Australians and particularly around mental health. And they called it because it was sponsored by um, Nib Foundation, um, which is a health insurance and Smiley Mind themselves. They called this project, this, this report, this survey, the state of mind, the state of mind survey. And what I thought was, why I was invited was that of, of all the things people talked about, in terms of protective factors or things that people cited, what it was, what the average Australian person cited, relationships and sleep as their two top preferred important protective factors that keep them on track. So clearly, the opposite can be true too. When, when if you if your relationships are all gone or, or in disarray or your sleep's gone, then you are those things plummet. Like your mental health plummet. So it was just a really a real honour to be part of that discussion. And I'm going to put a link to in our show notes of the of the report of the of state of mind. And I just wanted to talk about that and, and also just do a link to Smiling Mind because I just really believe in the kind of work they're doing. And, and I'm so grateful that they're interested in sleep and that the general Australian population are saying that without being prompted by us. It's a bit like your child on stage getting an award. You know they're brilliant, but it's nice to have an independent person endorsing them. So I felt like that about sleep, that this is independent organisations coming to us saying, hey, we want we want you on our panel to talk about sleep. So what, what about you? What are, what's been happening? Yeah, so similar things. So we've had a pretty busy uh, end of the year. It'll come up in my pick of the month a bit later, but uh, between uh, Chris, my wife, uh, and I, we've launched a separate podcast that I'm oh. Oh, really? Indeed. And so we put out eight episodes in one sort of fell swoop in November. So that was a, wow, that's fair, a, it was a fair chunk of work. Well done. To, to get What's it called? Done. I know you're going to get to it later, but uh, I'm interested. Yeah, SCN2A Insights. Okay, great. I'll come back to yeah. why it's called that Yeah, as well. Fabulous. And this is the new year. And we did a previous uh, podcast episode about New Year's resolutions and making a new start. So check that out. It's episode 14. So the theme for this month's podcast is sleeping in the heat. And we'll try and get to what's the right temperature for sleep and what are some strategies for sleeping when it's hot. So Moira, what's been your personal strategy through the years? Well, most of my life and still now, actually, I don't have air conditioning, certainly not in the bedroom. So growing up in 
Australia in hot, very hot summers, no air conditioning in the house, probably no not much insulation. We were always sent to bed on a hot night with like a face washer, I guess, or, or a little bit of a hand towel, but depending on how big you were, uh, it changed over the years. And a little basin, little, like a bowl with cold water in it, ice blocks to start the night. And you would just keep, just put it on your, you'd have it wet on your forehead or around your neck and it'd be wet. And it just it was fantastic. It cooled your body down and, and very little clothing and very little bed linen and just a bit of circulation with a bit of a fan or they were open windows and would sleep really well. And you'd wake up and you're boiling hot and you just, Put the and the face washer or think it's dry, <laughs> yeah. dry, and you just make it wet again and put it back on. So that's been a strategy, a lifelong strategy that I can highly recommend, particularly those with no aircon or uh, economic or environmental concern about having the aircon on all night. Yeah. What about you? What's your strategy? Ah, uh, so I like moving air. That's yeah. my thing generally. And part of that was when I was younger, living in the tropics for a little while mm-hmm. when I when I was in school and just always having a fan. Mm. And so now. The thing I love most is a ceiling fan above the bed. Yes. And just it's that. It's very effective, isn't it? That sort of yeah. moving air as a way of trying to keep cool in yeah. the heat. And what about temperature for you? If I was to ask you, Maura, what's the ideal temperature for sleep? What, what would be your pick? Oh, I don't know because I know that, that this is a bit of a bee in my bonnet around because people are very consumed or obsessed with the temperature of their bedroom. And I get asked this a lot. Um, so I would think, you know, 21, 23, I don't know what, what's, what's yours? I don't know either, (laughs) but I can tell you, we've got, you know, we've got a central heating system at home and I set it not to come on unless it's colder than 16 overnight. So it tells you I must be comfortable for the air temperature to drop to at least 16. Yeah. And it's got to be pretty damn hot before I'm feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And so the reason we find it hard to answer that question is we don't really know. Mm. And there is a lot of personal preference in, mm. you know, we ask people what's the ideal temperature for sleep. And you're right, people ask us that all the time. So what's the optimal temperature yeah. for sleep? What is the um, official party line? Like, do you have one? <laughs> no. And that's, <laughs> and that's part of it. So I was researching this episode. I did quite a lot of reading around this area. Mm. And there's actually not an answer. Okay. So there's answers about... Um, and we'll get to this in, in a bit with the interview, is answers about what, you know, how cold is too cold yeah, and yeah, so how hot is too hot. Okay. So those extreme, the extremes are covered yeah, yeah, in the research. They're the really wide mm. extremes. Mm. And essentially um, some of the talk um, in the interview is about your sort of bed microclimate. So if you've got bedding, then the ambient temperature in the room might be one thing, but mm. the bedding creates this little microclimate under the bedding, yes. which actually insulates you quite a lot from changes in ambient temperature. So you can tolerate of quite course. big ranges in ambient temperature if you're using bedding. Yeah. So when you listen to the interview, with, uh, you'll hear she uses the terms uh, sleeping semi-naked and without bedding to really try and clarify if you've got that sort of bedding creating a microclimate mm, uh, versus you're point. more exposed to the ambient temperature. And the funny thing for me is in her research studies around uh, temperature control and sleep, her control condition, which you sort of think of as the neutral condition, mm-hmm. is 26 degrees Celsius and 60% humidity. Oh, that's the control. That's the control. Right. Okay. And I had the same reaction when <laughs> I read that. I'm just like, oh, that's a bit hotter. That seems and hotter a, than I would expect. <laughs> and a bit more humid than I would have expected. Mm. But her, uh, well, her discussion is in the, her research that if you don't have bed clothing uh, on and are semi-naked, that is about the right neutral temperature okay. and neutral humidity. 
And one of the other things, you, you talked about the flannel and I talked about moving air and fans. One of the things that struck me in my sort of many trips to India is uh, building design. So there's mm. really hot parts of India where it's just above 40 for many months of the year yeah. and in ages before they had air conditioning. But, you know, much like our Queenslanders and houses that are on built stilts, yeah. on stilts yeah. so that there's movement of air. Mm. Lots of the palaces in India are built on lakes on stilts. Yeah. And so you there's both air moving across water and then through yeah, the palace. cooling. Fantastic. And so that just yeah. provides that natural cooling effect. Yeah. And then you contrast that to our sort of McMansions in modern suburbia mm. where houses are just built like boxes side by side yeah. with no moving air and just whack an air conditioning. And a lot of concrete. Yeah, and a lot of concrete <laughs> and just whack air conditioning on to, yeah. you know, control yeah. the climate. Yeah. And it really shows you how good building design yeah. can go a long way to yeah. improving well, sleep. Well, I'm sure there's imperatives now, surely, with um, with the cha- with more awareness with, with climate change. I would say if any people listening who have got any uh, ideas around the building codes, surely that you can't get away with just with not having good building design for to minimise aircon. I'd be surprised if it's not in in the codes. So I guess for this month is Dr. Kazue Okamoto Mizunu from Tohoku Fukushi University in Japan, and she's been researching the area of sleep and temperature for twenty years. With her first paper published in this area in nineteen ninety nine. And Kazuwe's looked at many things and the impact they have on sleep, including cooling pillows, uh, fans and air conditioning, and you'll hear our discussion about that. Thank you very much, Kazuwe, for joining us on the podcast and helping talk about sleep. Yes. So you first published in this area 20 years ago. How did you get interested in this area of research? When I was in university, I was studying clothing science and thermal regulation. I was interested in this thermal regulation I accidentally had chance to study sleep. And after that, I am interested in this area because uh, it helps people in all over the world, uh, regardless of health status. And this topic is very familiar to everyone. It certainly is a topic of interest, as you say, right around the world, because all of us have to deal with sleep when the temperature's high or when there's high humidity. Yes. How do changes in temperature affect sleep? In some new subjects, for example, you're not using uh, clothing or beddings. Um, ambient temperature higher or lower than the thermal neutral temperature have been shown to increase wakefulness and decrease REM sleep and also slow wave sleep. But in real life situations where bed covers and clothing are sufficiently used, um, sleep is actually disturbed during heat rather than cold. And how does humidity modify that or impact on that? Humidity is one of the most important factors that increase heat stress during sleep. Especially in high ambient temperature, high humidity further increases wakefulness and decreases REM sleep and slow wave sleep. There is a great impact. Our own body regulates temperature and there are some temperature changes that our own body does to help or to assist around sleep onset, what are they? At normal sleep onset, um, skin temperature, especially distal skin temperature, increases about 30 minutes prior to sleep onset. Then core body temperature declines and increased distal skin temperature allows greater inflow of heated blood flow from core 
and facilitate heat loss to the environment through the skin surface. The normal slink onset is accomplished by increased distal heat loss and core body temperature decline. And you talked about thermo neutral temperature range. What are the best conditions for sleep? In semi nude surfaces, if you're not using any clothing or bedding, probably desirable ambient temperature is around 29 degrees. You don't feel cool, neither hot. And if bed covers and clothing are used, um, upper limit of the ambient temperature is around 28 degrees. And in regard to relative humidity, around 50 to 60% is desirable. And then when we do use bed coverings or bed clothing, what does that do to the bed climate, so different to ambient temperature? Bed climate is the temperature and humidity of the microclimate between human and bed covers. And the comfort bed climate temperature and relative humidity are generally around 32 to 34 degrees and 40 to 60 percent relative humidity. And this climate is warm and slightly dry condition. And this is maintained quite stable regardless of ambient temperature. So one of the things we're seeing in Australia and also we see in the US is parents of new babies monitoring the temperature of the baby's room. Is that really necessary? Thermoregulation is not mature in babies, so it is important to avoid high ambient temperature during sleep. So I think that monitoring temperature as a guide to control bedroom is good. But sensation of parents are also important because there are other factors like humidity, airflow, radiation, and this cannot be detected only from temperature. For necessity, I am not sure, but this is my personal opinion, but whatever will be fine. And I'm very sure that monitoring temperature is necessary for aged people. Why is that? In aged people, sensitivity to detect temperature, ambient temperature is decreased. So they're difficult to uh, define high ambient temperature. So it is better to rely on thermometer to control bedroom temperature. So how do clothing and bedding help to regulate temperature? As I have mentioned, skin temperature increases and body core body temperature decreases at sleep onset. And after sleep onset, um, increased skin temperature is maintained stable and decreased, decreased core body temperature increases toward morning. And thermal insulation of the clothing and bedding greatly help this skin temperature and core, core body temperature change during sleep by maintaining comfort bed climate. When people wear clothing and get inside the bedding, bed climate temperature increases rapidly and comfort stable temperature is maintained through the night. So what are the best clothing and bedding materials when it gets hot? For bedding, I think mattress is very important because we can uncover the bed coverings during sleep but we cannot run out of mattress. So it is better to use a mattress with lower thermal insulation and with high moisture permeability and moisture absorption as well as water absorption. Another important point is to select 
slightly hard mattress, not the soft ones. Hard mattress will give space between body and the mattress, so the air will come through this space. But if you use soft mattress, body is always uh, attached to the mattress surface, so there is no space for the air to go through. So it is better not to use like a low rebounding pillow or mattress or bed bed in hot environment. These are good for low ambient temperature. In one of your papers, you note that there's a notion about air conditioning being unhealthy in Japan. Yes. Where, yes. Did, where did that come from? I don't know exactly, but many people think that air conditioning is not good for your health. This is my speculation, but probably they worry about overcooling during sleep. They cool too much. But I don't know where this came from and why many people believe that this is unhealthy. And another interesting point is that uh, many Japanese people staying in hotel doesn't hesitate using air conditioner. But when they come to home, they, they think it's unhealthy. What effect does air conditioning have on sleep when it's hot? When it is hot, it is difficult to uh, decrease core body temperature during sleep because you cannot lose heat easily. But if you decrease ambient temperature by using air conditioning, you can lose heat from your body and your core body temperature decreases so you can sleep well. You've also researched airflow, such as from a fan. What did you show happens with a fan? Airflow in high ambient temperature reduces the duration of wakefulness by decreasing core body temperature and skin temperature and also sweat rate, so it is quite effective. I really liked your paper on head cooling using a cooling pillow. That was quite interesting. What did you find in that study? Cooling pillow decreased heat stress by decreasing sweat rate during sleep and it slightly decreased wakefulness. So I think they are effective in hot ambient temperature. And I was curious, how did your cooling pillow work in that study? Because that was a number of years ago, about 15 years ago. In Japan, uh, when you have fever and your body temperature increases, many people use these cooling pillow. And so this is quite familiar for us. So we use this uh, cooling pillow. We put in the refrigerator and after we use it, but it melts towards the morning if you use during sleep. And this is the system of cooling pillow. I've seen now on some of the new technology sites, there are people trying to sell pillows that heat or cool and promoting them as helping sleep. Do you think they're helpful in normal ambient temperature conditions? In 2007, um, Dr. Seto has published a paper related to your question, and they used cooling pillow under 26 degrees with iced water cooling pillow with 16 degrees, and they found that um, sleep onset was decreased and also sleep maintenance was improved, yes. So I think it is effective at least under 26 degrees, but under very cold environment, I think this will be too cool. But 
I have not done any experiments, so I am not sure. And we've talked about clothing and bedding, air conditioning, airflow, cooling pillows. Any other tips or advice for sleeping in hot and humid conditions? In hot and humid conditions, it is quite difficult to sleep comfortably by just adjusting um, clothing and bedding. And if the ambient temperature is high, it is better to use air conditioning and decrease the ambient temperature first. And then you can arrange your bedding and also your clothing. So I recommend to decrease the ambient temperature first. Thank you very much for that advice. And thank you for helping us out with the podcast. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for that interview. And hello, big cheerio to Kazue if you're listening. We really appreciate your time and insights. What, what, what do you make of all that? What, what, was your, what were your reflections post-interview? One of the things that struck me was that anecdote about um, Japanese people not liking using air conditioning at home. Mm. It's like, oh, that's a little bit strange. And again, I'm not sure where that's come from. But one of the things that struck me about a year ago when I was in South Korea was there's a, a belief in South Korea of this thing called fan death. So if you're yes, sleeping yes. in an enclosed room with a fan, mm. that you're a chance of dying mm. during the night. And this was particularly prominent, you know, or you can trace that back to the early uh, 20th century. Uh, and then it was actually a myth that was promoted by the government through the 1970s to try and save electricity during heat waves. Yeah, yeah. wow. That's pretty clever <laughs> to, to just harness, harness an urban myth to cut spikes in electricity. So we don't know, though, whether it was to do with maybe, – maybe they just intuitively think it just doesn't make sense to be using too much energy of. Like even before we were aware of climate change, a lot of sensible people thought, what a waste of money, what a yeah. waste of energy. Yeah, absolutely. And whilst uh, in the interview, Kazuo talked about air conditioning being the most effective way of reducing the ambient temperature, you know, we do have to be cognizant of the fact not everyone's got access to air conditioning, um, but there's a significant energy cost associated with air conditioning and lowering the temperature. And so we really should be thinking about better building design, ways of incorporating airflow, use of bedding materials as ways of trying to cope better with sleeping in the heat. Yeah. So if you're looking for more information on sleeping in the heat, there's a couple of posts on Sleep Hub and I'll put the links uh, to those in the show notes. So Moira, what's your clinical tip of the month? Well, having heard all all the the expert um, from Japan and the discussions we've had around people sleeping in the heat, and I think it, a lot of people listening to this will be in the heat right now. I think it's just important for us as clinicians um, to reassure people that it's it's probably okay to have you know disrupted sleep from time to time. That it's it's not going to be a long term damage, and to just to take all that a sensible approach, do what you can. Maybe even if you're really philosophically opposed to aircon, occasionally letting it go all night if you needed to, giving yourself permission for that. But giving yourself permission for sleep-ins or, or naps or things, be adaptive as you can during those extreme conditions. And, yeah, just doing what you can to reassure yourself and to reassure your clients that it is it is a temporary thing. The weather will change as sure as taxes. And <laughs> the, the one thing we're sure of is that it will become cooler again at some point. So just, just uh, I guess it's just that reassuring. Reassurance is, is the essence of my clinical tip. Dave, what's your pick of the month this month? 
So my pick of the month, as I alluded to earlier on, is a new podcast that I'm involved with together with my wife, Chris Pierce, and it's called SEN2A Insights, and it's available via uh, all the usual podcast uh, platforms, as well as our website, scn2aaustralia.org. And as some of you may know, my son's got a, a genetic defect that causes intellectual disability, autism, as well as uh, very severe epilepsy. He's turning 18. Yes, in so January or December. December, yeah. yeah so it's yeah. an exciting time. Mm. Um, and that particular gene's called SCN2A. And part of the trouble with these very rare genetic disorders very common across all rare genetic disorders is for families and patients is getting access to good quality information. There's a lot of stuff in medical journals and medical conferences, but the families are often a bit removed from that, find that translation hard. So that's what we're trying to do actually with the podcast is interview some of the key researchers around the world and have the information in a form that can be both heard by other researchers to foster collaboration Uh, but then also by families and patients so that they can really understand what everyone around the world is doing. And so the reason to highlight it is a recording today with uh, Dr. Stanley Crook, who uh, founded a company called Ionis about 30 years ago. What Ionis has developed is a platform for new medications called antisense oligonucleotides, or ASOs. Now, you won't have heard of ASOs necessarily as yet, um, but the most sort of well-known one's a drug called Spinraza, that is a drug to treat spinal muscular atrophy. And that's a condition that pretty much uniformly kills people, kids that are born with spinal muscular atrophy. And this ASO, which changes the mRNA or the, the translation of proteins from the gene for spinal muscular atrophy, uh, completely turns it off. And so it's a totally life-saving treatment, changing what the genes do. Amazing. And that's what, I, that's what ASOs do. And there's ASOs, this platform that Stanley Crook has developed as part of his company, Ionis, is now at a point where they've got a platform that you can take that ASO technology to many different genes and trying to get it to the point where, say, for my son, who we think may have a particular variant that's the only one in the world, but you could design a medicine for one Mm. and attach it to an ASO, and that would be an effective medicine to treat Will's, for example, specific gene variant. How incredible. Which is, the potential benefits of that are it's just overwhelming. Exactly, which is totally different from our current way of producing medication that's called small molecule medications, which are medications designed to try and modulate the impact or modulate the way proteins interact with cells to re- produce an end effect. And usually you'll have some degree of modulation of that end effect, mm. whereas these mRNA, ASO-based technologies can completely turn on or turn off the particular thing you're looking at. And over the next five to 10 years in medicine, we'll be seeing a lot more of these ASOs for things like hypertension or multi-gene problems, but where you learn that by modulating a particular piece of mRNA, you can make a major difference on the outcome. So check out SE into our Insights podcast and particularly that episode on, it'll be on antisense oligonucleotides if you're really geeky and you're into that type of thing. What about for you, Maura? So mine's actually a TED Talk, and it was from uh, a couple of months ago, but I just recently listened to it, and it's called Why It's So Hard to Make Healthy Decisions by David Ash. And he's an American behavioural economist, and we've talked about behavioural economics before at least, maybe a couple of times, I think, on the podcast. But I just think it's really worth a listen to, and I think, you know, that I'm putting my attention much more above just that the individual decision. We put a lot of emphasis on in psychology and in medicine, just the what an individual can do to, to treat themselves or to change their problem, et cetera. And I, I know obviously that's a really, it's a really important. 
but I'm also interested in why some people can't do that very often and or very well. And also that sort of that meta level at the higher levels of, you know, policy and government and, and I think there's so much more. So I'm doing a lot of reading around that and trying to just get my head around why we often make poor decisions. Because a lot of the sleep stuff I see, it is particularly people who are outside of chronic disorder or it's just a lot of poor decision making about their health. So it's, it talks about you know, why do we make poor decisions that we know are bad for our health? Like we do the smokings under that and late nights, even drink driving, a whole lot of stuff that quite rational or educated people do do that. It's quite a funny, a very frank talk and he explains that, um, why our behaviour is often irrational and he sees he sees that, is it, that it's actually irrational but in highly predictable, predictable ways that we could as policymakers or as educators or we, we should can harness that and think about that with our so I'm I'm really interested in that. I think that some of our listeners might be interested in that too, so I'll put that a link to that in the show notes. So look out for our next episode, which will be talking about sleep in teenagers. Great. Looking forward to that. That's uh, we haven't visited teenagers as a topic for some time, have we? No, we did an episode on teens and screens back in episode nine mm. that I've listened to as part of researching the, the next one. Years ago. Years ago, indeed. Um, and so we'll revisit some of that, but explore some of the other aspects around sleeping teenagers. So thanks for listening. And um, yeah, great to have you back in 2020. Remember to um, send us any suggestions at our um, email address, podcast at sleephub.com.au. And if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes or you can subscribe via any podcast app. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.